Warm Regards, Conversations from the Front Lines of Climate Change. I'm Jacqueline Gill, an Assistant Professor of Paleoecology at the University of Maine. In today's episode, we will be grumpy about the Green New Deal, talk science fiction and scary futures with Annalie Newitz, and nerd out about how monarch butterflies are changing what they eat in a warming world. My co-host this week is Ramesh Langani, Associate Professor at Doan University in Nebraska. How's life in the heartland, Ramesh? Things are good. The temperatures are finally warming up. So yesterday it was 75 degrees. That was a nice change of pace from seemingly endless wow. amounts of snow. I feel like you and I talk about weather a lot. We do. Between, I, like, but I feel like it's fitting. being in the really seasonal interior and me being in New England, it's like a good conversation. Yeah, I feel like it's fitting. You know, there are people facing some challenges here in Nebraska because um, you may have heard about the flood events that have occurred yeah. um, recently. And so there are, you know, farming communities facing a lot of challenges and this brings up a lot of questions about climate change and, you know, what's a bomb cyclone and what's, you know, what does this mean? And there's a lot of great efforts being put forward by local communities to help each other out. And really, that's the most important part, right, is that everyone's getting the help they need and that communities are coming together around these disasters to help each other. I was feeling like I wasn't even hearing a lot about it on the news recently and was sort of wondering about, are we just burnt out from you know natural disaster news or are people, is this a new normal? We're getting used to it or do people not care because it's you know not a major urban center? I think that's um, the one. You, I think it's because it's the Midwest, yeah, yeah. unfortunately. But I'm yeah. a little biased since I live out here. So that's at least how I interpreted the sort of trickle of news coverage. But it seemed to tick up, you know, a few days post event. But I think that happens quite a bit where if there's a large weather event about to hit, let's say the East Coast, there's a lot of coverage before, during and after. Whereas in this case, obviously, most of the coverage was happening post the actual weather event. And that was really due to the high amount of snow we had. And there was such a high amount of water in that snow. And so combined with the rain event we caught, it was just, you know, overwhelmed our rivers. And, and so a lot of communities got devastated from it. So people are digging out slowly and uh, they're digging out together. So that's a good thing. Well, here in Maine, I have some news and that I found out on Monday that I'm tenured. I am no, I will no longer be assistant professor Gill. I will be associate professor Gill. And I feel like neither. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I feel like neither of those titles really tell you anything about what we actually do, like assistant to what or associate of what, but yeah, so I, I have tenure or will have tenure as of September. And that just feels really good. Although quite surreal because this whole process takes like a year. And so it doesn't quite feel real yet, but it's kind of nice. Yeah. I feel number. like we just celebrated a very big accomplishment in a very podcasty kind of way. We were just like, and I got tenure. All right, good job. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and let's talk right, about let's the talk Green, about New, the Green Deal. New Deal. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so let's talk well, about the Green New Deal. What are your thoughts on it, Jacqueline? <laughs> yeah, I was going to tell people to like send me chocolate on, on the website. But yeah, we should talk about the Green New Deal because there have been some updates in that the House resolution did not go through. And both of my senators, Collins and King, voted against it because they felt like it was too strong and too aggressive. And I feel like the whole messaging around it has been really kind of silly since the beginning. And I'm really grumpy about it, probably for different reasons than everyone is grumpy about it. I think we all have our own reasons to be grumpy about the Green New Deal. Well, I, I guess, why are you grumpy about it, Ramesh? Because I know you're also grumpy. Yeah, I'm a little bit grumpy about it. You know, I'm not grumpy about its aspirations. I'm grumpy about the lack of understanding standing of the fact that it's a house resolution. You know, I'm, I'm grumpy about the civics of it. It's what, six pages, I think, and basically talks about, hey, climate change is a problem. We need to solve it. It doesn't necessarily lay out any details 
of how we're going to achieve those goals. And the details, as with everything, the devil is in the details. The details are important. And because it's a House resolution, I think the left is sort of falsely characterizing it as the thing that's going to solve all of climate change. And the right is falsely characterizing it as, you know, this massive thing that's going to take away all of our freedoms and cows. And and I think that's because of the language. Yeah, 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 the cows. So, you know, I think it's because of the language. It's not meant to be a bill or a law that has those details. And so this is really, I think, all the language around the Green New Deal is really a lesson for all of us in civics. What is a House resolution versus what? I was just thinking about Schoolhouse Rock. Right. Yeah. I'm a bill on the steps of Capitol Hill. Right. There was no like, I'm just a resolution. Right. Because that would be the end of the song. So so that's what makes me grumpy about it and how it's being characterized. Again, aspirationally, I think it's great. But I always sort of I think about the Green New Deal like like the destination you put into in Google Maps. But it's not even like I'm putting in a specific address. It's like me in Nebraska saying I want to go to Maine. And Mm -hmm. Google Maps is saying, okay, here are 10 different road pathways that you can take. But if I was ultimately trying to get to your house, Jacqueline, I wouldn't be able to get there based off that scale of of direction, right? I need your exact address. And so it's just giving us an endpoint. It's not outlining how we are going to get there. Right. And I felt like there was just a lot of enthusiasm for something that a lot of folks just didn't really know much about in general, too. This sort of discussion of the Green New Deal is something that was, again, this Band-Aid that was going to, or not even a Band-Aid, but just like it was sort of the silver bullet, I guess would be the better metaphor. And for me, I I was frustrated by the fact that I, t- I would try to talk to people about it, and a lot of folks didn't actually know what was in it. And mm-hmm. that was true on both the right and the left. I think there's a, a mess, a, I guess, a, a lot of lessons about messaging too, just in terms of how everything was rolled out and the the incredible enthusiasm that pushed this forward really quickly. But then ultimately now it's like, well, what's the next step? And and I don't think it's going away. I think this idea or the concept of the Green New Deal, there's a lot of energy behind it, but I think we need to be thinking very carefully about how we're actually going to lay out a real platform for this, you know, going into the future. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And so the hope is that those details will come into focus sometime soon and we'll get some legislation moving us in that direction. Yeah, that'd be great. Something. I mean, I mean, I'm also one of those really nerdy people who really likes to see the nuts and bolts and and, and get into the, the details. Um, I, I choose candidates based on their platforms, and I read them very carefully. And I care less about how cool you look with your jacket over your shoulder, standing on a dirt road in a Annie Leibovitz photo. But that's just me. Right. Right. I mean, I choose my candidates based on how they eat their pizza. You know, if they eat their pizza <laughs> with a fork and a knife, they're out. They're out. What sauce do you put on your steak? Um, right, right, right. Yeah. Anyway, Ugh, so much to be grumpy about. And I am grumpy, even though things are starting to thaw out here in Maine. I saw a pair of ducks today on my way into work, which is very exciting. And yesterday, while I was trying to motivate myself to get out of bed, I heard geese fly overhead for the first time since they left us last fall. But spring is still a ways off, which is unsatisfying. And I feel like this is a metaphor for so many things right now. We're in the middle of what New Englanders call mud season. There are piles and patches of dirty snow that are giving way to last year's dog poop, broken campaign signs that people never took off their lawns and then blew into my lawn, crunchy leaves, half frozen mud. There are potholes on my street that are large enough to swallow small cars and large children. The daffodils and the tulips are still in bed 
overhead and the trees are just bundles of sticks. And there's still snow in our 10 day forecast. And we are guaranteed dollars to donuts. I would bet you anything that we will get at least one more spring blizzard here. But my people, my, my people of New England, we have a strange resiliency when it comes to mud season. So my favorite local ice cream spot has already been open for two weeks and the lines were basically stretching into the parking lot, even though it was below freezing out when it opened. And more excitingly, I think the sap is running. So during this brief muddy window in spring where it gets above freezing during the day and then below freezing at night, people poke holes in maple trees. This is how maple syrup happens. They hang buckets on the trees. They collect sap. They boil that sap and they make maple syrup. And no, it doesn't hurt the maple trees. They're just fine. Sugar shacks where the syrup is made open their doors and they sell these little maple candies that are shaped like leaves or small children. They pour maple syrup into soft serve machines and onto snow. We all eat it. It's very fun. And then we do things like go to garden centers and start seeds indoors. And we wear shorts when it's 40 degrees. And we very optimistically put our road salt and ice scrapers away, even though we know that we're going to need them at least once again before this mud season is over. And this kind of optimism is pretty easy because we all know that spring is actually coming to the Northern Hemisphere. And thanks to climate change, it's coming earlier and earlier every year, which can actually cause its own problems as plants start to wake up only to be hit by these late spring cold snaps. If you're in the middle of it, it still seems like an act of faith to take the storm windows down and to sign up for a spot in the community garden. A lot of my friends struggle with seasonal affective disorder and depression in general can just make it feel like this is all there is, just you and your sad lamp and an electric blanket and a lot of Cheez-Its. And I actually find mud season to be much harder than winter. There is nothing higa about mud season. It's gritty and it's dirty and it's dead and you can't get decent strawberries. And what is the point of longer days when all the trails and sidewalks are covered in water and ice and my house smells like a freshman dorm? You can tell I'm a little grumpy about this. So yesterday on my way to the gym, I was listening to NPR and I heard this interview with author Barry Lopez. He's got a new book out and it deals like much of his writing with the lessons we learn from wild places. And the interviewer asked him how he stays hopeful when it feels like the world is falling apart. And he said, how embarrassing to give up when everything around you is growing. It reminded me that even though I can't see it, Underneath the ice and the trash and the dirt, nature is waking up, just like it always has and just like it always will. Our guest today is Annalie Newitz, journalist, editor, author, and I think it's okay to say this, a professional nerd. She was the founder of the science fiction and futurism blog io9, and she's now a freelance science journalist. She currently co-hosts a podcast of her own about science fiction and culture with her partner, Charlie Jane Anders, called Our Opinions Are Correct. And if you don't subscribe, you really should. It's awesome. Annalie, I'm so excited to have you on our show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I actually was reading your Wikipedia page today, as one does, and I didn't know that you actually have a PhD, which means you're Dr. Newitz, which is pretty cool. And your dissertation was on uh, images of monsters, psychopaths, and capitalism in 20th century American pop culture. And I know people probably don't ask you about that very often, but I kind of want to hear about it for a minute. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about it. I, I am a doctor of culture. So, you know, if you have a, a cultural 
world emergency. Like you can kind of call out on the plane, like, we don't know how to interpret this. So then I come in and help out. So I was, (laughs) I did an interdisciplinary degree. We called it American studies. um, And that's still a discipline that's kind of in the process of coalescing in academia. So I was kind of combining methodologies from political science and social science with humanities. So I was looking at a whole bunch of stories, uh, movies, TV, books, that focused on monsters and people who were treated as psychopaths by the stories they were in. I was interested in how those stories were affected by economic shifts in the United States. And so there's a couple of ways to look at that. You can sort of say, well, there was the Great Depression, and then we suddenly had a whole bunch of stories about a particular type of monster. But it's complicated because the stories that become popular, it's not just about what Hollywood pays to make, it's also what people will pay to see. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of measuring, you're measuring what people want to seek out as their diversion, as their entertainment. But then you're also measuring what does Hollywood or what does the publishing industry think people want. And so once you can see that, once you can see which things broke out at the box office or which things sold really well in bookstores, then you can start to tease out um, how does economic crisis tempt us into reading certain kinds of stories. And it's interesting because if you trace a monster, like one of the monsters I looked at was cyborgs. And if you look at cyborgs throughout the 20th century, they change a lot and Mm -hmm. they do really change in response to, to social shifts. And the same thing for stories about the undead, which was another kind of monster that I looked at, which comes That monster comes right out of fears about post-slavery, post-colonial relationships, and then it, you know, winds up being stuff like The Walking Dead uh, much later. And so it kind of gets away from the original colonial meanings. Um, So it was really fun. Uh, It was turned out it prepared me really well to be a journalist, but not so much to be an academic where interdisciplinary degrees were not easy (laughs) to to turn into a job. (laughs) And I kind of want to follow up on that for just a second, because it sounds like the monsters that we create in our fiction that we consume in television or, or comics or books or movies are really reflections of what we're afraid of. And do you feel like there are, we we hear from a lot of people about climate anxiety or environmental anxiety. Do you feel like that's risen to to the point where we have monsters that are standing in for that anxiety? Like what would be the climate monster? There's a bunch of climate monsters and you'd be surprised how far back in science fiction fears about climate go. And again, it's important to remember that these kinds of creatures, they do represent fears, but oftentimes buried in these monster stories, you find a lot of hopes as well. The first big climate story is from 1915 or 1912, maybe, called Princess of Mars. And it was made into a relatively terrible film called John Carter of Mars. And it's about how Mars was devastated by some kind of massive climate transformation. And they've lost their water. The main character in the story, John Carter, comes to Mars and is like, holy shit, you know, this is what it looks like when a planet changes so dramatically. It's, it's climate changes so dramatically. And there's political instability as a result. 
and they're kind of reaching out to other planets and trying to get help there. So you see that. And then, and then of course, much later in the 20th century, you get stories like Dune, uh, mm-hmm. which is also about a planet that has had dramatic climate transformation and it's connected with exploitation of resources. A lot of times when you see a monster of climate change, it's a giant monster because the climate is really big. So it's like yeah. a giant worm. Um, mm-hmm. I totally think of later Godzilla movies as having a climate change aspect. In fact, the very important early 70s Godzilla film, Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, is literally <laughs> Godzilla fighting climate problems. Yeah, so, <laughs> so. Annalie, I guess a question that comes to mind as you're, as you're saying this is the idea that do you think that the explicitness of those climate monsters being climate driven has become mm-hmm. more prevalent versus you know, I recently saw this movie, um, Annihilation. I think it had Natalie Portman in it. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I kept falling asleep on the couch. But this idea of this sort of mythical force, do you feel like it's more effective for these climate monsters to be represented as actual climate change? Or do you think it's more impactful to an audience if sort of the climate monster is actually manifested as a physical monster? Yeah, as a kaiju that we can fight with our giant robots. Right. For right. Um, the day after tomorrow. Yeah. Storm. yeah. yeah. Right. Or Geostorm or The Day After Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of super cheesy climate change movies that are actually trying to be about climate change or extreme weather. Interstellar does that as well. We've got a lot of climate change imagery early in that film, although the later part of the film is really terrible. But I, you know, it's funny because when you say, is it more effective, then the question is effective at what? Right, right. So are you trying to teach people, here's how climate change works and here's a possible way that we could be resilient? Or are you just trying to tap into our deepest fears about the world being yanked out from under us and all the habitats that we love turning into habitats that are unlivable? Good fiction really does both. You know, good fiction is going to sometimes just give you a giant monster. Jeff Vandermeer, who wrote the novel Annihilation that the movie is based on. And by the way, the novel is just so much better than the film. And it's it is it's about an environmental scientist. And it, Jeff Vandermeer does such a great job capturing what it means to study ecosystems and ecosystems in transition. Mm-hmm. And right. um, and I think that's a great example of a novel that actually does teach you about how the science works as well as providing this spooky, weird thing that we can't name or understand that is changing our ecosystems. And in the novel, like I said, it's very explicit that the main character studies ecosystems in transition. The terrible, weird force that we don't understand is transforming ecosystems. And it's as we go through, it's very clearly an allegory. There's no solution because, of course, it's a weird force from outer space that's like digging weird fungus holes right. in the ground. Right. Right. <laughs> But I mean, and that's that's the part that, you know, again, that's the sort of fiction-y part. How do you tap into people's fears and how do you kind of open up their minds to the story? Well, you do it through um, having creepy monsters that don't educate you about anything, really. They just serve as the kind of underpinnings that help us get into the story. Right. Yeah. And that, what's really striking about that book to me, reading it as, a, as someone who loves science fiction and who is a scientist, 
is that it captured that angst of, about uncertainty so well. And that sort of second guessing yourself about what you're seeing and what you're doing and what the path forward is. And it makes me think too about the day after tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, I actually have a very soft spot in my heart for that movie because it came out. Really? Just as I was, yeah. <laughs> just, it came out just as I was figuring out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so just before I got into grad school and there's a paleoclimatologist in it. And yeah, so yeah. I, actually, I love everything about that film, except for the wolf CJ. <laughs> I think this is like the ninth time that the day after tomorrow has come up. This is like a running theme in, in like a number yeah. of episodes, which is fine. What I like in that <laughs> film is that they tried, they kind of tried to split the difference between having a giant monster and having climate change because climate change actually chases them down the hall, not in the wolves, right. but yeah. like we yeah. see like the walls are freezing behind them and they're like running, running. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's, that's kind of a fail, but I'm and glad had, that like, someone likes that. that. Yeah. I had like freezing nightmares about that for a yeah. long time. Well, it's an intense, um, yeah. There was some uh, some climate communication research, I think, at the Yale Climate Communication Project about that movie. And it turns out that The Day After Tomorrow did more to increase public awareness of climate change than Al Gore's documentary An Inconvenient Truth, which came out around the same time. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, you've done nonfiction and fiction writing. So why do you think fiction is so powerful at doing what facts try to do but often fail? It's such a good question. And I will be completely honest and say that one of the reasons I started writing fiction was because I was so frustrated with the reactions I got from nonfiction, because I have done a lot of writing about geoscience and climate change. And I wrote a book about mass extinction. And people, when they hear the words climate change, when they hear even just the word environment. And when I say people, I mean sort of the general public. People just, they shut down. They close up. They kind of refer back to what they sort of already know or already believe. And it's very hard to kind of knock on that door and say, hey, I've got some new facts for you. But with fiction, I think there's an opportunity because we have characters that you can identify with. There's scenarios that are removed from our everyday life. They're removed from what we think of as facts, where when you knock on that door, people open up and they say, all right, I'll listen to a story. Like, I want to hear a story. As a writer, then your job is to, first of all, tell a good damn story so that people don't shut the door. But then you can do a lot in that story to work in themes about science or climate change that kind of just sneak in. You know, they sneak into people's minds. And I think it's because when we agree that we're all in a fantasy world or where we agree that we're in the world of fiction, we let our guard down a little bit and we are open to hearing perspectives that we wouldn't if it was just an actual person person saying like, hello, I have a chart. And I mean, I have characters in my novel Autonomous who literally do hold up charts and say, <laughs> say things are happening. And we, there's a lot of, um, a lot of the action takes place in the ice-free Arctic because there's a pirate with a submarine on the Arctic. Somehow, because it's a pirate in a submarine and she's super badass, we can suddenly talk about the fact that, oh, the Arctic Sea is ice-free. What does that mean? So, Annalie, do you think that part of people's ability to, as you said, let their guard down has to do with the fact that when they're reading fiction, they are not playing a role in the story as opposed to 
when you hand them facts, implicitly, they are still a character in that interaction. They're expected to take in those facts and then act on those facts, not in a particular way, but they're supposed to act on those facts. And do you think that leads to them shutting down? Because that idea of like being a fly on the wall versus being an active participant. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, because there's a kind of a lot of times when we write about climate change, there is a, an implicit call to action or more frustratingly, there's no call to action. So it's just kind of like, well, you should feel bad and things are bad and you wind up feeling like everything is garbage and there's nothing you can do. Part of it is that that, that feeling of, you know, fiction, like I said, is is kind of not part of my life. It's it's something right. that's out there. It's It's a dream world. But people, you know, they take really strong ownership of their fiction. Like if you look at how people respond to, you know, Marvel films or Star Wars, you know, there's activism around those stories and how they want those stories to be told. So I'm not sure if that's the difference. I Mm -hmm. think that the Mm -hmm. difference between fiction and nonfiction really is just that, okay, we're all going to agree that this isn't real. And then we're going to have a story. And once we kind of make that agreement, we're all agreeing that it's not real, then people feel more liberated. And even when you start talking about real stuff, it's just that for lack of a better term, it's a safe space where we can all meet and just all we're doing is just telling stories. There's no pressure to vote. There's no pressure to come up with a solution necessarily. It's just we're exchanging ideas. So it is interesting. I mean, I, I think it's it's partly about not being feeling like you have to do something, but it's also partly just feeling like you're not I don't know, maybe that you're not implicated, like you don't feel guilty about what's happened in the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Whereas with climate change, you know, there's a lot of like, oops, we did this to ourselves and to all the other <laughs> life forms around us. So it's kind of bad. <laughs> yeah, all the facts are like tied to you personally in a way, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you have a carbon footprint. You did right. this. And there's yeah. something even if you didn't. Yeah. And there's oh, even yeah. something qualitatively different. I think about even reading in a fiction novel, humans increase CO2 and caused climate change. You're still able to separate yourself because of that fiction, like, oh, this is fiction, as opposed to mm. seeing Al Gore go up the graph there, right? Because you're implicitly one of those dots that's going up the right the y-axis. Yeah. In fiction writing, we talk about world building. And when you read a book or if you see a movie, you know, all of the little details are part of that built world. And so part of that world building can be, oh, climate change is real for sure. And all this stuff is going on. (laughs) And even if you're not a believer in climate change, you can just say, oh, well, in the rules of Game of Thrones, winter is coming and everything's going to be screwed up. That's why we continue to watch Game of Thrones, even if we're climate deniers. Well, so I want to hear more about, you know, you've written a lot of nonfiction before. You have this great book about mass extinctions that I love that I want to talk about in a minute. But your first novel, Autonomous, as you said, takes place in a very warm world, right? It takes place in a somewhat near future in an Arctic where there's no sea ice anymore. And what made you decide to write about climate change in particularly this way? There's a, a, a real sort of health aspect to your novel. And I feel like a lot of the discussions, or at least even a lot of the fiction around climate change tends to focus on the impacts on the environment. Like climate change is something that will happen to trees and polar bears and coral reefs, but maybe not necessarily people as long as we don't live on the coasts or near a place that tends to catch fire a lot. So, you know, what have you personally learned about the connections between climate change and human health? And, you know, why did you decide to frame your novel in that particular way? 
Well, there's the very basic answer, which is that I think it's irresponsible to write about the future without writing about climate change, because Mm. all evidence suggests that that's coming in our relatively near future. I mean, this book is set about 130 years in the future. So there are some pretty significant changes. Again, to go back to the world building idea that has to be part of the world building. I was involved uh, for about a year on the sort of leadership council of the American Geophysical Union. And it was during the time when the AGU first started publishing a new journal called GeoHealth, which is actually a great journal, highly recommend if you're interested in the connection between environment and health. And I was just really impressed with how much we already know about how human health, of course, also the health of non-human animals are connected to habitat derangement um, or habitat disturbance. And climate change. So I really wanted that to be something that would fit in to the book, that people could kind of figure out that health will be impacted and also politics will be impacted. Social relationships are impacted and in the future in autonomous Basically, slavery has been reinvented. They call it indentured servitude, but it's basically slavery once you're indentured. And this is partly a fallout from how destabilized countries have become because of dealing with climate change. That makes me think there's this quote by Ursula Le Guin that I really love. And it comes from, she had this collection of blog posts later in life that was then published as a book in, I think, 2017 called No Time to Spare. And she's talking about um, how we often sort of are, are really dismissive of spectrum fiction or science fiction fantasy as being escapism. And she says, the direction of escape is toward freedom. So what is escapism an accusation of? And I really love that because for those of us who engage in science fiction as not quote unquote, just escapism, I met you at WISCON, which is a feminist science fiction convention, which was really my personal crash course in feminism and, and social justice. What you said about autonomous makes me think too about the power of imagining these futures, both in terms of imagining better futures for ourselves, but also imagining where we are potentially headed. If you sort of take the present to its logical conclusion, we are going to show you, we're going to reflect society back to you and show you what's possible. But we can also imagine these sort of better futures. You know, a lot of what you write about involves, I mean, you know, things like mass extinction or this sort of having to biohack our way out of this, you know, very hot planet with, you know, these new emerging infectious diseases. So you you write a lot about about these sort of darker futures. And do you ever feel like, I'm not, I'm trying to figure out what I'm trying to ask here, because on the one hand, you know, I think it's really important that we show people what the future could look like and show people what the possibilities are. But on the other hand, when the present is really bleak, there's also this, I don't know, this need also for escapism, right? So moving towards something like, I want to read my Dragonlance novels because today was a really bad day, right? Yeah. And so this idea of speculative fiction is both a mirror that we can hold up to ourselves and also something that allows us to escape from the the difficulties of the present. And like, how do you, like, you seem to walk that line really deftly in your own work, both your fiction and nonfiction work, as you sort of think about the intersection of society and culture. That's not a question, but <laughs> um, well, I really, I mean, I'm help glad. Me, help doctor, help me. Yeah. So I'm really glad that you brought up the Ursula Le Guin comment about escapism, because I, I think that people mistake escapism for kind of just obliterating your consciousness as if it's just sort of taking a drug and not thinking about anything. But Mm -hmm. what escapism really is, is allowing yourself to think about possibilities. 
And I think when we are at a very dark point in history or when we're up against a really tough global problem like climate change, we kind of shut down our ability to imagine possibilities. We were afraid, we are uncertain what's coming next, and we get into a mode of thinking only really near term and just one possibility. We don't open ourselves up to multiple possibilities. And so one of the things I try to do both in my nonfiction and my fiction is to have what I call pragmatic optimism, which is not the kind Mm of goofy kind of techno optimism of we're going to solve everything with an app, but that Mm -hmm. we need to realize that we are going to survive as a species. There's a lot of evidence from the history of the planet that species like Homo sapiens tend to survive mass extinctions and tend to survive major habitat disturbances because there's a lot of us. We can survive in a lot of different habitats. We can eat garbage and we don't seem to mind. We're very resilient in that way. Maybe we won't survive at the level that the population size we are now, but we are going to survive. So we need to plan for that survival. And that's where escapism can be really useful because we can think about not just the dark possibilities in the near future, but how do we rebuild from a huge disaster or a series of disasters. There's a really great uh, series of books that I keep recommending to people by Carrie Vaughn that starts with the novel Bannerless. Uh, and then the second one just came out. It's called The Wild Dead. And it's about a series of California coastal communities trying to rebuild after the United States has collapsed because of so many climate disasters kind of just crumbling the government away. Like they just, the government can't hold on anymore. And these are communities that are in a kind of climate disaster scenario. There's huge megastorms, the seas are rising, but they're building agricultural sustainable communities at a small size. They're trying to keep their population down. They're trying to only grow enough food for the people in their communities. And it's this weirdly hopeful scenario. It's, of course, it's dark. It's not forgetting about all the things that are going to be really awful, but it also imagines a future beyond that disaster. And how do we rebuild in a direction that might be more sustainable than the one that we're in now? That's what's great about escapism is that you learn about all kinds of possibilities and you keep in mind that your species is going to survive and it's going to be really weird. (laughs) It's going to look really different in a hundred years, in a thousand years, a hundred thousand years, who the heck knows what Homo sapiens is going to be doing, but we probably will be around or maybe we'll have speciated. So there'll be like a bunch of other crap around. I mean, hopefully everybody's going to keep speciating (laughs) and we'll have new, new life forms uh, all over the place. So, uh, and that's kind of in, in my nonfiction book, Scatter, Adapt and Remember, that was kind of what I tried to think about was where does humanity go in the long term, and how do we get there and how do we remember that we're not all going to be wiped out. We're not going to get chased by ice down a hallway (laughs) and then all freeze to death. (laughs) So we're basically more like cockroaches than trilobites, right? We're going to... Why are we casting shade on trilobites? You know, trilobites survived two mass extinctions. So if we can, if we can be trilobites, I am psyched, you know, like we'll be doing pretty well. Yeah, I think we will be, we'll be doing good. Yeah. As you were saying all this, you know, something that came to mind was this idea of like, oftentimes climate change is put in terms of survival, right? Like we need to do this for the survival of the species. But there's also, I feel like as you were talking that the idea of survive and thrive came up as well. And so I just 
guess I want to get your take as a fiction writer. Do you feel like you are, as you tell these climate change themed stories, or even your belief that we are going to survive, do you feel like we should just be telling stories of survival? Or do you think we need to be telling stories of survival and thriving? And again, thriving is sort of right. It's a wonky definition. It's sort of a judgment call. But to me, there's a difference. And I wonder if part of the challenge around climate change is because we're framing the discussion around surviving, right, which inherently is optimistic and simultaneously dark. Does that? Yeah, no, it's a you raise a really good point because we do have to distinguish between surviving and thriving and survival can look pretty freaking grim. You know, survival just means you're able to reproduce and you know you can reproduce living in a storm drain eating garbage that's totally one possibility for our future it's, it's a place where people live now you know it's not outside the realm of possibility one of the problems that I've had with some environmental rhetoric is this idea that we're all just going to die out or we're going to kill the world and that that's the real threat. Obviously, that's not going to happen. There's literally no evidence that suggests we are going to kill everything on the planet or even that we're going to necessarily kill all humans. But we are looking at a future where if we don't start having more sustainable environmental policies, we're looking at a future of mass starvation. We're looking at a future where farmland is disappeared. We're looking at a future where pandemics spread more easily because you have a population that's already weakened by lack of access to food. And this also leads to political instability, which leads to its own kinds of problems with famines and forced relocations. So that's all under the umbrella of survival. You know, we're going to survive. It's just going to suck ass. And (laughs) we, you know, like nobody likes that. (laughs) So that's kind of what we really need as a way of thinking about how do we survive in a way that feels like we're thriving, you know, where we're living in ecosystems that are resilient and where we're hopefully reducing our footprint on those ecosystems. It's just really hard to explain that. I think this gets back to something we were talking about earlier with the kind of uncertainty where you can't say to people, well, basically the future under climate change will just be much worse for poor people and for some people who aren't poor. But, you know, like a lot of people are just going to keep living pretty much the way they are now. It's just there'll be fewer places there where they can do that. And once you start getting into the kind of reality of what might happen, people are like, well, that doesn't seem so bad. I mean, we already have rich people and poor people. And like, so what? I heard somewhere in Africa, there's a new inland sea, but that's far away. So I think instead, you get a lot of people who are telling environmental stories. And I don't just mean people in science fiction. I mean, people in the kind of activist community want to tell stories about how there's just going to be total death. They don't want to tell the complicated, nuanced story. They're just like, look, we change or we die. I think that's really a problem. I I don't know. I don't have a solution um, at all. But I do think that the solution requires us to tell fictional stories to convince people as well as presenting them with facts that are nuanced and sometimes don't exactly line up with the kind of doomsday scenarios that might move people. That was a long answer. <laughs> Sorry. No, that, that, that <laughs> it kind of jives with what we know about environmental communication and how people get burned out by, by those narratives of there's this community of people who are concerned and they want to motivate people to act. And so they try to frighten people by telling them the truth or telling them a truth about, again, this sort of total devastation narrative. Like we are here to save our lives. We're here to save the planet. We're here to save, you know, our species. And 
And yet we know that that tends to backfire. And then you see people pulling back from that narrative and then other folks get upset because we're kind of underplaying. It's like I get yelled at for being too much of a climate hawk and not concerned enough about climate change, like in the same day about the same tweet, right? I mean, it's it's just, there's no, there's such a spectrum of, of opinions about the environment and our relationship to it. And people are pretty entrenched. And so it can get really frustrating. But thinking about your own writing, the futures that you imagine are not always awesome, right? I mean, a, a surviving a mass extinction, you know, surviving is pretty optimistic, but a mass extinction is still, as you said, like it's a pretty tough time. Even the present can be pretty scary too. And you, you know, you do a lot of writing and reporting on a lot of really current and pressing issues in science and technology. And a lot of those stories about everything from information to people losing their jobs because of automation to sex robots, like all of that can be pretty bleak. Um, so I want to know how you stay resilient. And we ask a lot of our guests this because uh, it's something that our listeners ask us a lot is how do you keep going? How do you stay resilient? How do you stay positive and do this work in the face of so much bad news when it's your job and it's not just something that you can tune out and turn off? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm working on a nonfiction book right now that's about cities that have been abandoned, ancient abandoned cities and why people abandoned them. And uh, and it's, I mean, a huge part of it has to do with environmental shifts and changes and how mm -hmm. that affects political structures. And it's actually weirdly hopeful and helpful to be able to look back, even look back 9,000 years to Neolithic cities that struggled with climate shifts and see that, yeah, times get tough, but people still struggle through and that there are always survivors who manage to come up with a slightly better idea, a slightly better way to design a water system, a slightly better way to integrate uh, healthcare into a city. I mean, things don't always get better immediately. And that's, it's tough to think, oh, it might take a thousand years for us to fix this problem or 2000 years, but we have done it in the past. You know, humans have been recording their own history for thousands of years and things have been dark for centuries at a time. And yet there's always some place in the world where people are doing something awesome. Europe had like a really crappy thousand years, but in the Middle East, things were awesome. You know, the Middle Ages were, were time of great flowering of, of science and math, but just not in Europe. <laughs> so so <laughs> Europeans are like, it was the dark ages. And it's like, yeah, only for you guys. <laughs> Um, I always think of that and think of the long term picture. Maybe in a thousand years or 2000 years, people will be looking back at us and saying like, wow, that was a tough time. But luckily, we pulled through, we figured something out or we made it work. I take hope from that, which again, it, it's just having faith in this big long term project that is homo sapiens. And we don't necessarily have to be good people for it to succeed. We just have to be animals who want to survive, who are tool makers, and we use tools to survive. So we keep trying to live and we keep trying to help each other live. And that's a big source of hope for me. It's funny that you say that because that's like basically what I say when people ask me about the climate system and, and the environment is I, when I look at the really long-term records of how environments respond to climate change, I actually find a lot of stories of resilience and hope in that. And it's funny too, because 
because next week I'm teaching a graduate class that I co-teach with an archaeologist. And next week we're talking about civilizational collapse and just the very idea of whether or not collapse is really a failure. Because for a lot of, I mean, as you know, for a lot of these cities that get abandoned, that sort of scattering and adapting and sort of trying new, you know, to kind of throw back to your the title of your, of your book, these sort of new approaches that involve maybe abandoning urban centers and kind of decentralizing everything can be a form of resilience. And it's just really our value judgment that looks at that and says, oh, well, we no longer have this big shiny thing that, you know, with these really big tall stone buildings and these centers of commerce that have these really rigid power structures, but they're yeah. not necessarily very flexible, right? Moving into smaller communities or changing your subsistence strategies. Like that is a, a form of persistence. And it's not like everybody in those cities just all disappeared or died in one day, right? They moved out, they did other things and, and that's a form of resilience. And so it's a, it's a way of kind of spinning that collapse narrative. And I'm sorry if I'm totally like spoiling your book or something, but <laughs> spoiler, <laughs> it's not really collapse. One of the things I love about archaeologists, and I do think that they share this with environmental scientists, is this notion that it's not ever really a collapse. It's a transformation. It's a transition. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of archaeologists now really hate, not hate, but they, they shy away from the term collapse because it doesn't actually capture what happens. It is a transition. It's a civilizational transition. And it often is a renewal. Like you said, you know, when people choose to leave a place, they have a good reason. And it's hard to leave home. And people don't do it without thinking about it really hard and thinking that there's a better alternative. We forget that. And we, again, humans love apocalypse stories. We really just think they're super great. And we love to watch ourselves die. Like nobody wants to watch like the dog apocalypse, right? They want to oh watch. <laughs> no, would, right? That I is just like not it. acceptable. Yeah. But the human apocalypse is like super exciting. <laughs> so so it's so, like, like, what is that? I mean, it's. I went. I watched that movie, um, the World War One documentary. They shall never grow old. And I'm sitting here through original footage and like piles of dead bodies and people blowing up. One horse dies, and I'm like ready to get up and leave the theater. Like I'm like sobbing hysterically in the in the theater because it's like watching. I can't watch a horse die, even though I've seen like thousands of men dying. Yep. I think, you know, that's something that environmental activists have figured out and gotten right, which is that if you appeal to people about, you know, oh, humanity will die, they're just like, all right, let me get the popcorn. But if you're like, this cute, tiny frog is going to die, <laughs> people are just like, okay, drop everything, donate to the frog fund or this the seal fund. one sea turtle video and we get straw bands, right? One yep. sea turtle video. I actually don't mind that approach at all. Like if we can appeal to people's love of charismatic microfauna, mini fauna, right. <laughs> yeah, you know, megafauna, yay, that's also good, but we don't have a lot of that left. So I think it's really true that we're we're super attracted to those those stories of, of collapse and apocalypse. And uh, but buried under that, I think is is a real true desire for renewal and for rejuvenation. And that's the secret of the apocalypse story is that it's really a wish for something better and different. I like that a lot. And I think it's a it's a good place to end too, because it's you know, it sort of takes this idea of of endings and turns them into just new beginnings or new new transitions. That seems to be a theme in a lot of your work, right? It's just taking what we have and tinkering and kind of becoming makers and figuring out what to do next with, with what we've got. Yeah, that's right. Survive the dark times and keep going and uh, keep making friends. <laughs> that's like really what's going to get us yeah. through is, is having good friends and good communities. And I think that's where it all starts. 
Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed getting yeah. to talk to you um, from the future here on the East Coast. Um, <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I think we'll move on briefly to our unexpected science for the day uh, with a story of some charismatic microfauna. Ramesh, why don't you tell me a little bit about monarch butterflies and how they are going to be affected by climate change? Yeah, right. So many people or most people have seen a monarch butterfly. I've seen an image of a monarch butterfly, you know, either in slow motion or big migrations moving through the U.S. And, you know, as spring is springing here, plants are growing out of the ground. And an important plant for these monarch butterflies is milkweed. We think about milkweed as maybe a single plant, but there are actually a few different types, a few different species of milkweed, and some are native to the U.S. and some are invasive. And so there was this really interesting study trying to understand how a warming climate is going to impact the relationship between monarch butterflies and those milkweed species. And so these researchers down at LSU, what they did is they grew some milkweed, um, sort of the native milkweed, and not surprisingly, the monarch butterflies were were doing their thing. They were eating it and they were chomping on the leaves and, and taking in the poisonous sap that milkweed have that the monarch butterflies are actually resistant to. And they also fed uh, these monarch butterflies this invasive milkweed. And what they found was that under normal conditions, the monarch butterflies really fell in love with the invasive milkweed and the survival of the monarch butterflies went up on this invasive milkweed. So, all right, that's under normal current conditions. And so what was interesting was then they did the same experiment, but just under warmer conditions. And the plants still looked the same to the butterflies. But what they found was that the monarch butterflies that were now still preferring the invasive milkweed had a significantly lower survival. And what they found was that that invasive milkweed was now producing too much of the toxin that the monarch butterfly had been able to withstand under normal conditions. The author, uh, Matt Falden, he basically characterized this invasive milkweed as an ecological trap. It was sort of the trail of candy leading to the oven, essentially. And so it's a really interesting way to look at how climate change is going to affect these iconic relationships and these iconic, again, charismatic microfauna, something like a monarch butterfly at a scale that can be seen in somebody's backyard. Because I think you can actually buy, for better or for worse, you can buy these invasive milkweeds at like your local hardware store, you know, the, your local garden center, because they look pretty and they make really nice flowers. And so it was a really interesting way to study this relationship between butterflies and plants. And as a plant ecologist, I always love it when plants get a little more press, even if it's through a dying butterfly. Well, and it kind of also gives a lie. You know, you often hear the phrase, well, climate change is great for plants. CO2 is a fertilizer for plants. But of course, you know, there are lots of issues with that. And the plants are going to be behaving differently with warmer conditions and higher CO2. And in this case, if these plants are making more poison that then the butterflies are not able to, you know, withstand, then it's like, I'm just trying to think of like a good metaphor. It's like you go into the old country buffet or whatever, and you have this wonderful array of stuff. And of course you don't want like the crusty old mashed potatoes. And so you go for like the cheese fountain and like get your own fondue. fondue. I don't actually know if Old Country Buffet has a cheese fondue. Well, let's go with it. Let's oh, go with it. Right. Cheese fountain. Yeah, but then, like, okay, then suddenly, like, we're just jacking up the cholesterol in the cheese fondue fountain. And, and so suddenly, this, like, more attractive thing is just becoming less and less good for you in the end. And, um, you know, we try to talk about the unexpected ways in which climate change might be influencing the planet and its inhabitants. And this is, I think, a classic case of things are more complex than just warmer and more CO2 equals 
better growing conditions for plants and more fertilizer, right? And of course, right, right. uh, but it's the butterflies that are going to suffer. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Well, on that happy note, those butterflies better learn to uh, scatter, adapt, and remember uh, if they want to survive. But uh, we want to thank you all for listening to our show today. I hope that you found it hopeful, even though we talked about things like mass extinction, monsters, and climate disasters. And uh, we're really happy to have had uh, a great guest today. Warm Regards is a labor of love, and we are always looking for sponsors to help us grow and to sustain the efforts of the amazing volunteers who run the show. So if you've got something that you would like us to share with our community, please reach out to us. We're always looking for sponsors. We would also love to hear from our listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at Our Warm Regards and email ideas or feedback to OurWarmRegards at gmail.com. You can listen to all of our previous episodes on whatever your favorite podcast service is, including iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Warm Regards is produced by Eric Mack and Justin Schell. Joe Stormer writes our transcripts, and Catherine Pinehart is our social media maven. My co-host today was Ramesh Langani. Our guest was Annalie Newitz, and I'm Jacqueline Gill. From all of us at Warm Regards, thanks for letting us into your head. Thank you.